please pray with me. And Father, now we come to you asking for your grace to be upon us yet again. For Lord, there is not a moment where we are not in constant need of it. Lord, without your grace, we are not only lost, but we are forgotten. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we should be doing. And therefore, we don't know what we are to do in this dark and broken world. It is only through your word that we are able to have the guiding light of hope and peace and love permeating in our lives. God, we pray that you will bless us as we come and gather at your feet to listen to your word and that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit as the word is being preached. And so, God, hear this prayer and we ask that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Here's a question to start it off today. What is, in your estimation, the greatest experience a human being could ever have? In your mind, what would be the greatest experience a human being could ever have? Now, depending on who you ask, you're bound to get a wide variety of different answers. For example, if you ask that question to a person living in poverty, no doubt their answer would probably go something like uh, winning millions in the state lottery. Or if you ask someone who just was diagnosed with a life-threatening illness, they probably would respond with that question saying something to the effect of 30 more years of healthy living. And then, of course, if you ask that question to a lonely bachelor, no doubt his answer would something go to the effect of marrying the most beautiful, the most elegant, the most coolest person ever. But if you ever ask that question of the Bible, the answer would be our passage today. You see, as far as the Bible is concerned, the greatest experience that a person could ever have is what it says in the very first verse, having one's transgression forgiven. You see, from the Bible's perspective, the greatest experience for a human being is not being wealthy, is not being healthy, it's not being in love, but it's someone who knows and has experienced firsthand that their forgiveness has been completely forgiven. And so, as we continue our sermon series on worship in the context of the gathered church, we're going to take a look at forgiveness by looking at the means in which forgiveness is achieved through an ancient practice, an ancient art, an ancient act that is known as confession. Confession. I want to talk to you today about the importance of confession when it comes to the life of the church. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today, three points as it pertains to confession. First, we're going to talk about the need for confession. Then we're going to talk about the fear of confession. And then we're going to end it with the assurance of confession, the need for, the fear of, and finally the assurance of confession. Let's jump right in by looking at the very first point, the need for a, a confession. Now, when you just take a casual reading of this passage, one of the things that immediately catches your eye is how frequent the psalmist, the writer of this psalm, references a specific idea that he repeats by referring to it in three different ways using three different words that all mean the same thing. And those three words are sin, transgression, and iniquity. Okay. And by frequently referencing this idea of sin, clearly he is conveying to us something that he takes very seriously and therefore something we need to take seriously, and that is this thing known as sin. And so with that said, here is the main question of today. What exactly is sin? What is sin? And the reason why I ask something that seems so obvious is because sin is one of those words that we hear so often in the church 
to where we think we know what it means, but when we come to find, many Christians don't actually know what it actually is. And so I ask again, what is sin? Well, I came across a definition from a theologian by the name of Cornelius Plantiga that I think really knocks it out of the park because he defines sin as the following, the vandalism of shalom. Sin is, according to Cornelius Plantiga, the vandalism of shalom. And I think that is so beautiful. Let me tell you why by asking you to first consider the first word of that phrase, vandalism. What is vandalism? We all know what it is. I mean, after all, we live in New York City. We work in New York City where we see it all the time. Vandalism is the intentional damage, destruction, and desecration of something, right? We know what vandalism is. So now let's move on to that second word, shalom. What is shalom? Well, if you ever grew up with Jewish friends or if you ever studied Hebrew yourself, you would know that the word shalom is actually the word for peace. Peace is shalom. Shalom is peace. But if you ever did a careful word study of the word shalom and how it's used in the Bible, you would come to find that shalom means so much more than peace. In fact, the best way I've heard it illustrated is imagining a situation like this picture that I'm about to show you right now. Here is a picture of a bunch of rocks that are beautifully, almost unnaturally stacked together. This is an imagery of shalom where different things are held together that conveys beauty, and balance, harmony, and hope. But instead of a bunch of different rocks coming together that depend on friction, gravity, and hard surfaces, shalom is the coming together of God, mankind, and creation that rely on love, holiness, and justice. Come on back, okay? So when Dr. Plantica defines sin as the vandalism of shalom, what he's trying to convey is this idea of the beautiful unity the profound blendedness of creation and God and humanity has been wrecked, has been ruined by sin, okay? And as a result, all that is left is destruction. Destruction. Destruction? Yeah, destruction. Take a look at that phrase that you find in verse 6, the rush of great waters. That's referring to destruction. Let me explain. In the ancient world, the water, specifically the oceans, the vast seas, were always perceived by the ancients as being very mysterious and therefore very dangerous. Because even though they had boats back then, right, they were nothing compared to the massive ships that we have today. And even if they had those massive ships, it would still be no match to the violent, chaotic storms that are found in the sea. For those of you who ever watched that cable hit show, The Deadliest Catch, or if you ever watched that blockbuster Hollywood movie starring George Clooney called The Perfect Storm, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you know that I'm saying is something that is absolutely true, okay? The waters, the seas, the oceans are incredibly dangerous because they are so merciless when it comes to its incredible power. And so with that in mind, it makes perfect sense why the psalmist refers to the oceans or the seas and the violent depths that it has to convey what sin has done to the world. Sin has caused the world to be like the cold, dark, merciless sea where there is nothing but violence and random chaos that we see so often either on the news, on social media, or God forbid to your horror with your own eyes in some dark corner of the city somewhere, sin has caused the vandalism of shalom. 
Now, you might be wondering at this point, what does any of this have to do with confession? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you go back and take a careful look at our passage, you'll notice how the psalmist refers to sin. And you'll notice that he doesn't refer to sin uh, in a very distant, detached way, as if he's talking about the sin or some abstract sin or some generic sin. No, the way that he talks about sin is very personal. To where it's almost as if he's talking about my transgressions, my iniquity, my sins. And so here's the question. Why does the psalmist, when he's referring to sin, does he speak on such personal terms? Well, believe it or not, he's trying to point out something about human nature that is true of you, that is true of me, that is true of everyone. You see, what is so often the case is that when we are confronted with how dark and chaotic and violent the world can be, we can so easily respond with such an accusatory, self-righteous indignation and just point with such vitriol and say, man, this world is so broken, this world is so messed up, this world is so unjust. But the psalmist is saying, look, don't be so loud with your indignation, because as that cultural proverb says, with every accusatory finger that you point at something, remember there are three being pointed back at you. See, that's the point the psalmist is trying to get at. He's trying to draw our attention to the fact that even though it's true that we can point with anger and frustration that the world is messed up, he's also telling us, don't forget that as you do that, include yourself. Because as it is true, the statement of the idea that the world is messed up, he wants to make sure that we follow it up with another truth statement that is as equally true, and that is, I'm part of the problem. The world is messed up, and I'm part of the problem. In fact, here's a little exercise. Would you say it with me right now? Here we go. The world is messed up and I'm part of the problem. Again, the world is messed up and I'm part of the problem. One more time. The world is messed up and I'm part of the problem. Very good. You see, most often the case is when you and I hear the word confession, we think that word is only personally relevant to some criminal suspect in a jail cell waiting to be questioned by police detectives. But the Bible tells us that, that word should be personally relevant to every single one of us because the Bible tells us that every single one of us are not simply victims of sin, we're also victimizers of sin. This is why the Apostle Paul once said these words in Romans chapter 3. We're starting in verse 10. He says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. We are all sinners. And because we are all sinners, we are all guilty. And because we are all guilty, we all need to confess. Let me say that again. We all need to confess. This is why, by the way, every time we gather together in corporate worship, we make sure we include in the liturgy a time where we corporately confess our sins because we are trying to acknowledge God and be true to ourselves in recognizing that the world is messed up and I'm part of the problem. I am also personally responsible. I have also personally contributed to the cosmic vandalism Shalom. This is why confession is so central to our worship of God as we gather on the Lord's day. Now I know many of you Christians, you hear this and you mentally give assent to it. You agree with it. 
You say, yes, pastor, I know. The world is messed up and I'm part of the problem. That's why when I go to church at NCF, I also confess my sins. But I wonder, do you really confess your sins genuinely? See, the reason why I ask is because Christians are notorious in simply giving lip service to certain truths without actually believing it in their heart of hearts. And I think, and I think I'm right to say this, is that for most Christians, we say we know we need to confess, but we don't genuinely believe we need to confess. And the reason leads me to my next point the fear of confession. Elspeth Huxley was a woman who many thought was a modern day Leonardo da Vinci. She was a true genius. And I want to take, uh, I want you to take a listen to how this genius once described sin and our relationship to it. Listen, listen to what she once said, quote, when other people commit sins, you are startled. But when you commit them yourselves, they seem absolutely natural. <laughs> Now, it doesn't take being a genius like Miss Huxley to agree that what she's saying is absolutely spot on. Because when you and I are confronted, when you and I are exposed by our sins, the natural instinct, the natural reaction is to do what? We minimize, we excuse, right? Or we even flat out deny that we have anything to confess. We pretend that we have nothing to confess at all because we say we have nothing that is sinful. And this is a behavior that we see everywhere and everyone, even in some of the most prominent and powerful people in our culture today. Case in point, many years ago, when the whole Watergate scandal broke and it was revealed to the entire country that our very own president at the time, Richard Nixon, was indeed a political crook, he would not in any way acknowledge his sin. It's so funny, after the whole massive fallout happened with his presidency, he did hour-long interviews with, um, with a reporter by the name of David Frost. And if you look online on YouTube, you can actually see these interviews. And never once does he ever acknowledge that he did anything wrong. Never once does he ask the American people for their forgiveness, acknowledging his failure. Instead, he will use certain words right, to sometimes hint that he may have done something wrong. Words like error or phrases like, you know, uh, mistaken judgment. I mean, he goes way out of his way to not confess anything. And what's so sad is that at the pinnacle of his scandal, he looked at the American people right in the eye and he said these words, I am not a crook, even though the evidence clearly showed that he was. Now, for those of you who are a little bit on the goody-goody, two-shoe side of things, if those of you who are a little bit more of avoidance of, of scandals and sins, and, and those of you who don't see yourself in any way remotely close to someone of the stature of a Richard Nixon, you may be tempted to think that all this discussion of confession, the need to confess, doesn't apply to you at all. That is completely irrelevant. But before you allow your heart to get settled there, consider what it says in verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Now here the psalmist tells us that he was silent about something. And because he was, he was groaning all day long. And if you skip down to verse 5, you come to find what he was silent about. What was he silent about? My sins, my transgressions, my iniquity. He covered it up, just like President Nixon. Now, here's the thing that you need to understand. This psalmist 
okay, is not some corrupt politician trying to avoid a massive scandal. This isn't some ancient criminal trying to avoid prosecution. The psalmist writing these very words happens to be none other than the great King David. The King David, the one individual who in all the Bible is given the privileged title, a unique title called the man after God's own heart. And indeed, if you look at David's life and you compare him to his contemporaries, clearly he was one of the most righteous, most godliest, most impeccable characters in all of Scripture. And yet here we read in his own words, by his own admission, that even he at times, many times, minimized his sins, denied his sins, act as if he had nothing to confess. Right? Now what's my point in all this? My point is this. If the man after God's own heart has skeletons in his closet, how dare any of us have the audacity to say that we don't have skeletons in our closet? Because you know you do. I know I do. We all do. We all have things about us, whether it be in our past or even in our present, that we are so ashamed of. Things about us that make us feel pathetic or perverted, disgusting or dangerous. Something about us to where if people found out, we would be so terrified. And so we would never in a million years acknowledge it, bring it to the light, right? Or let alone do anything remotely close to confession. And of course that makes total sense because after all, aren't we living in this time of cancel culture, right? A culture that is so eager, that is so triggered, that is so itching to expose people's failures, to expose people's flaws, right? And so what do we do? We hide, we deny, we even move to different cities. And we never speak of anything about us that we know is so wretched and wicked. And because of doing that, we think we're safe. But are we? Read again, verse 3. It says this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. The ancient people knew that the bone was still the strongest part of the human body. They didn't know a lot of things back then, but they still knew that. And indeed, biologists tell us that the human bone has more compression strength than even reinforced concrete, that same stuff that they build massive buildings in the city, right? And when you understand that, you come to understand the significance of what David is saying. Because he's saying that by hiding our skeletons in our closet, we end up feeling as if our literal skeletons are turning into powder, right? To where even the strongest part of you is just caving under the extreme weight of guilt and shame that comes from unconfessed sin. Right? See, as much as you think that by hiding your sins, by denying your iniquity, by acting as if you have no transgressions, that you're okay because no one knows about it, the fact of the matter is, you know about it. And because you know about it, you also hear that voice that's constantly condemning and scrutinizing right? and making you feel so wretched and wicked, you see? And so now it seems like we're in between a rock and a hard place. We're so terrified to confess because we don't want to be condemned. We don't want to be rejected, right? We don't want to be humiliated. And yet by not confessing, we have such inner misery, such inner turmoil, excuse me, that comes from the collective guilt and shame of not confessing our sins. 
And so the question that we're left with is, is there a release from this dilemma? Is there a way out of this seemingly entrapped space? Well, there is. And to tell you, leads me to my final point, the assurance of confession. Read again with me verse 5 of our passage where it says this, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here, the psalmist tells us the solution to the dilemma of confession. It all centers on who you confess to. And who is that? Verse 5, to the Lord. To the Lord. This is such an important thing for us to notice because it tells us that the reason why our guilt and shame crush us to where it feels like our bones are turning into powder is because our guilt and shame point to something bigger than itself. You see, guilt and shame is to the soul what physical pain is to the body. It's a symptom of an underlying issue. And you know what the underlying issue is of guilt and shame? It's the issue that your relationship with God has been wrecked. It has been ruined. You see, the Bible tells us that your relationship with God is so foundational that it affects the stability of every other relationship that you have, whether it's your relationship to other people or your relationship to creation. Let me see if I can use this illustration to explain. Imagine for a moment a massive high-rise building and someone straps dynamite on top of the roof and the explosion goes off. Chances are that building is going to be intact. What? Why? Because the roof, right? The stability of the roof does not determine the stability of the whole building. But if you take that same dynamite and strap it to the foundations of the building, now when that explosion happens, the whole building falls down because the stability of the foundation determines the stability of everything else and friends that is a perfect picture of our relationship with god you see the bible says that the human spirit can endure incredible loss it can survive tremendous loss whether it be the loss of a job the loss of your finances even the loss of a loved one like a family member or a friend but one loss that you will completely never recover from, not from a long shot of any sort, is if you lose your relationship with God. This is why confession is to the Lord. Because when you are confessing your sins to God, you're not simply saying, oh God, I want you to forgive me, as if you want to avoid punishment. No, you confess your sins so that you can avoid God severing his ties with you. Let me say that again. When we confess our sins, we're not trying to avoid punishment. We're trying to avoid the avoidance of God. You see? And that's exactly what does not happen when we confess our sins by believing in the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says that God came into the world as Jesus Christ and he lived a perfect sinless life where he has nothing to hide, he has no skeleton in his closet, where he has no sin to confess, no iniquity to lift up, no transgressions to reveal, right? And yet, he suffered a humiliating death as if he was the most guilty person of all, as if he was the most shamed person of all, as if he had the biggest skeleton of all to hide. Why? So that those who put their faith in him as their savior substitute, making him their master, making him their king, right? his punishment 
becomes the punishment that you should have suffered for confessing your sins. But instead of you suffering it, he suffered it for you. That's the beauty of the gospel message. It's this great exchange where your God takes on your role of being the person who should be punished and he puts it on himself. And as a result, there's a cover-up. Right? But not the shady kind of cover-up that politicians do all the time or powerful people with money do all the time. No, it's a holy cover-up. It's a just cover-up. It's a righteous cover-up where the Savior of the world, the one who has the sole authority to cancel you, the only person who has the right to release you of the consequences of your sins, he did that for you by taking on that condemnation, that rejection, that humiliation. Hear me when I say this. When you put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have nothing to fear with your sins, your transgressions, your iniquity being revealed because Jesus paid the full penalty, the full punishment for those sins. Are you terrified of being rejected? Jesus was rejected for you on the cross. Are you terrified of being humiliated? Jesus was humiliated for you on the cross. Are you worried about being mocked? Jesus was mocked for you on the cross. Are you worried about being impoverished? Jesus was impoverished for you on the cross. Because again, the most important, the most foundational relationship is your relationship to God. To where if you have nothing but God, you have everything. But if you have everything but God, you have nothing. See? That is the beauty of the gospel. And when you understand this and when you grasp this, you know what's going to happen? You're not going to be afraid to confess your sins. You're not going to be terrified of acknowledging your iniquities, right? Because think about it. What could anyone else do to you? They could cancel you, but who are they? Are they any different from you, right? Do they have any real authority to cancel you? No, the only person, as I said before, who has the real power, real authority to cancel you is the one who canceled cancel culture for you, you see? And as a result, you, for the first time, feel something that is so foreign and yet so appropriate because of what Jesus did on the cross. You feel safe to confess. Because whatever humiliation, whatever condemnation, whatever rejection someone can try to throw at you when you confess your sins, you know it is nowhere near the level of condemn, condemnation, rejection, humiliation. You should have gotten what you want. And so now you can bravely face whatever comes your way when it comes to the horizontal consequences of your sins. And because you can do that, you know what can happen? Reconciliation can happen. Instead of avoiding relationships, you can confront relationships. Instead of denying your sins, you can acknowledge your sins and actually ask for forgiveness and do the beautiful work of building bridges of relationships again. And when you do that with other people, specifically other Christians, now you create a society that is completely different from the world. The world is nothing but cancel culture. But the society made up of the church becomes a confessing culture. It becomes a culture where it's safe. A, a culture where people can acknowledge their iniquity without shame and guilt. And now there is freedom. And now there is joy. And now there is the greatest experience of all. The release of being forgiven. 
And I tell you, when the world sees the alternate society of the church living out that kind of culture, the world isn't going to look at us with ridicule. They're going to yearn to be a part of us. Because the world right now, it is caving to cancel culture. It is misery because of cancel culture. And it is crying out instinctively for the church to live out the beauty of the gospel. That it gives us the freedom and the safety to confess. Brother and sister, let me ask you. Are you living a life of freedom because you know you are safe to confess your sins to God and to each other? Are you living out the kind of society that the world is yearning for the world to be like, but can't be because it doesn't have Christ? You have Christ. We have Christ. Let's now live out the blessed community of a confessing church that lives out the joy and freedom that comes from the forgiveness of our sins. I hope and pray that for the world's sake and for your own hope and joy that you will live that out. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to truly live out the message that was preached today. That we would be a church that does not live out the culture of canceledness, but that we would live out the culture of confession. Where instead of condemnation and humiliation and rejection, there is forgiveness, there is reconciliation, there is restoration. God, we live in a world that is just caving under its own scrutiny and we need a higher authority than the world to release us from it all and expose us to some grace, to expose us to mercy, to give us freedom and joy that only you can give. Oh God, would you give that to us now so that we can truly be a powerful witness, a hopeful witness to a world that has lost all hope. We ask that you would let us live out this truth as a church family and churches everywhere. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.